All right, I should have grabbed a clicker. All right, there we go. So looking back, what is the difference between the universal church and the local church? Quickly and briefly. The universal church includes all believers in Jesus yes. and the God on that are alive and wherever they are. Amen. The local church has to be alive, living people, and in the local area. Yeah, and to really be considered a church, it has to be alive spiritually too, right? Um, good. Vocation. Vocation. All right, here's this kind of funny article from Babylon B. It says, Matt refuses to join local gym, claims that he's just part of the universal gym. <laughs> of course, that's ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as... What's that? It's my type of fellow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you take that same concept and apply it to the church, you better not be your type of fellow. <laughs> Uh, yes. What are some of the attributes of the local church? We went over them last two weeks, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago. We went over fellowship, I believe. Fellowship. Fellowship. What else? What else makes a church a church? The teaching of the word. Yeah. yeah. Teaching the word, service of the saints, um, the ordinances, the baptism and Lord's supper, prayer. Equipping, self-governance, all those things make up a local church. Christian. Christian. All right. That's me, too. You're a truck driver, huh? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Who's in charge of a local church? God. Jesus. Jesus, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We just went over in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, right? God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. All right, MacArthur and Mayhew say that by God's design, churches depend on faithful leadership in order to be strong, healthy, productive, and fruitful. Polity. Polity is just another word for government that will sometimes be used in the context of the local church. So you talk about uh, a local church government or a local church polity means the same thing, just a structure of uh, government or leadership within that church. No matter what word is used, neither polity nor government are found in the New Testament. Those are just words that we've used to uh, talk about the concepts that we find within the New Testament. The idea is that a local church has a biblical model of leadership and rule. And we're trying to discover what the best way to govern and, and set up a local church would be in looking at the government and polity. There are different styles of polity in the local church, and much of it is organized along denominational lines. So different denominations function in different ways. We're gonna go through and look at a few of those. Uh, This is a second column issue. Uh, For the most part, the structure of a church government has some freedom to vary. So the fact that, I think we were talking about last week, I don't remember if it was in class or later, but a a church should have government, right? Uh, We need to function under that, that authority structure that the church needs to have elders and, and deacons and teachers and servants. But the structure that that takes on is going to vary from church to church. And again, it's going to largely depend on different denominations. So different denominational groups will set up their structure in one way and some in another. So an Episcopalian model, um, we don't have an outline on our page, but um, this is an Episcopalian model of leadership. There's an archbishop on top, and then bishops that will report to him that um, structurally are um, submissive to the archbishop, uh, rectors that are under the bishops, and then congregations that the rectors serve. And so you can kind of get a, a hierarchical understanding of how the Episcopalian church is set up. Uh, Presbyterian church. Um, we, yeah, Presbyterian Church. There's a, a general assembly and then a presbytery that meet underneath the presbytery or underneath the general assembly and different elders within different churches that report back to the, the presbytery. And they even have different kinds of elders. They'll have a, a teaching elder and a, a ruling elder. They'll make a distinction between their elders and then congregations that they serve and that are accountable to them. A congregational model. Uh, 
um, uh, for a large part of American history, uh, especially, uh, we've adopted a, a single elder model where there is one pastor of the church, deacons that report to the pastor and assist the pastor, um, and of course the pastor and deacons are, are both serving in congregation while the congregation is accountable to them. Um, so the, the lines going up and down there kind of betraying, kind of deceiving, because the very words that are used for pastor and deacon um, within those words, it, there's an idea of servanthood, that they are to serve. That is part of their role, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, another uh, congregational model, this is a, a plural elders model, where there are a plurality of elders, not just one, but multiple, and a congregation that they serve and that serves them. And there can be deacons in there, um, but not always, it's not necessary within this model. Uh, board model. This also, a board, is a word that you will never find in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Uh, I come from a church that operates under a board model um, growing up, and it's not very biblical. Um, but a lot of churches do that. Um, they take the, the kind of business model that we see in America, and well, there's a CEO, and you know, that's kind of our, our pastor, and then different people that report to him and, and we'll put these people in a board underneath the pastor who are accountable to the pastor um, and then a lot of times it's going to become yes men where if the, the head guy wants something done then he'll go to the board and they'll uh, pass you know whatever amendment or issue that he wants done so uh, there's another example of a congregational model all right um, let's see. This form of church polity that is congregational is not preferred for the same reason that DMV is not preferred. Also, it is unbiblical, a democratic version of a congregational model where the, the congregation as a whole, they're um, doing all the voting, all the decisions, um, especially and including the the appointment of elders or of pastors. Um, you have some history of that you're telling me about, right? And I don't know, can you briefly give us a, an understanding of how elders are appointed in some churches you've been associated with? I remember that. Yeah, so they uh, normally they kind of have a members meeting and they sit together Couples, of course, which normally they don't. That's kind of interesting. Um, and they put in their ballots in a, in a uh, basket that's passed around as far as who they think is would be a good uh, leader or pastor, put their name in. And uh, the, the ministers, the existing ministers are in the back reading off the ballots silently and putting them in groups and seeing how many, you know, uh, who's getting the majority of the votes. And so, um, whoever would get that, whoever would get the majority, um, say that normally they take the, the top two or three, and then um, they take them, their names, and put them up in a book, mix the books, put them up in a bedroom, and somebody else goes up there and mixes the books too. And then, so this is the next Sunday. Normally it happens between a couple Sundays. And then the, the couples are sitting up front that their names are in. And they bring the books out, put them on the table, three books. The three men get up, each pick a book, go back and sit down, open their book and see if they've been chosen. <laughs> so. That's kind of what makes, I guess, a, a democracy version, right, where they're voting, um, kind of like who would for an election, whoever gets the most votes, and then we'll take the top three, and um, they'll have some mystery involved there. Um, wouldn't be weird if we did that with our political elections, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think I might like that a little better. <laughs> but, so that's a, a congregational model. All right, let's get into the Bible and see what we have in the Bible. Let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4. 
and I will read verses 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles, um, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, and for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 32, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of a stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so in there, you can see some of the same aspects that we were looking at last couple of weeks that make up a local church. You see the service and the teaching. And God has given these different people with these different gifts and abilities, these um, giftings by the Holy Spirit to churches to serve and equip them. In verse 12, that's what it says the purpose is for, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Um, so we go through and we can name these different offices. There are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And then um, again, you see what the purpose is for, for equipping and for the, the building up and service. Most scholars understand pastor teacher to be one office here uh, and is not um, separating the two in the text. However, there are obviously teachers in the church who aren't pastors. All right, let's start by looking first at this first, uh, first group that he mentions, apostles. The New Testament uses the word apostle in two different ways. An office of authority based on a calling by God and as a missionary or a sent one. And usually they're divided up. So the one who is has this office of authority, we will understand them as a, a capital A apostle. They are an apostle in a, a biblical sense, whereas a lowercase a apostle is one who is a missionary. The word literally means one sent, one sent by God. And so there are two different ways they're used. Uh, this passage here speaks of the former, of the uppercase A apostle, the 12 disciples plus Matthias and Paul, who is one who is untimely born, uh, which I believe we will look at here in just a moment. All right, let's turn back to Acts chapter 1. And while we're turning there, what was going on in Acts chapter 1? Jesus, Jesus is ascends into heaven, and the church is um, the apostles have to select another apostle because Judas had hung himself, so they have to select another apostle. And, um, they select Logan's model, right? We're gonna we're gonna pass lots. <laughs> yeah, Jesus yeah. Apostle. But in that case, they're saying that God is the one that flips over the lots. So yeah, well, I think that's the same concept that they would hold to as well. All right, Acts one twenty one and twenty two. Will somebody read those for us? Therefore, it was necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. All right, good. So again, this is after Jesus had offed himself, right? And so they're trying to find a replacement. And what qualifications did the disciples impose on candidates? What did they have to do in order to be a candidate for the 12th apostle? Yeah, been with them, with Jesus, the entire time. Mm-hmm. From the baptism of John until ascension. All right, good. And is there any other passage that speaks of apostolic qualifications, what it means to be an apostle? I was just talking about the fact that there are apostles given to the church, but as far as uh, qualifications for an apostle, this is all we have. And even this is kind of vague. Some people will disagree over this and say, well, maybe because of Paul, 
this wasn't a, a divinely inspired qualification, but that these men came up with this qualification on their own. I'm not willing to go there, but um, we'll get to that momentarily. And then what does this mean about the office of apostle today? That this is the only place where we have a qualification for apostle, and that qualification includes somebody who walked with Christ from beginning until end of his ministry. That means there's no apostles today. All right. There haven't been for almost 2,000 years. Yeah. So it is an office that was for a time and a, a season for a specific unique purpose, but it's an office that we believe to have ceased to uh, continue to be filled and isn't around today. We're actually going to talk about that in the sermon this morning. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. And this is why I think um, that's a good standard to, to keep. And But we shouldn't understand that as a, a standard that man imposed upon the, the office of apostle, but they, that was divinely inspired, that these men should have walked with Christ or of his ministry. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9, talks about, um, well, it says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received from Christ, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he, Christ, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So he's saying Christ's resurrection is, uh, is something that is true and verifiable. You can go talk to the people today. And then verse 7, he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So right there, he identifies himself as an apostle and various other places in scripture. I, I haven't checked this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's identified as an apostle more than any other apostle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says in verse 8 that he is one who is untimely born. Um, so first of all, who are the apostles that Paul has in view here? Cephas, James, mm-hmm. and the other apostles. All right, yeah. all the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, again, in verse 9, he includes himself. For I am the least of the apostles. So he includes himself and Cephas and Paul and the others, as we mentioned. Uh, what is the nature of the phrase, untimely born? Again, in light of what we just looked at in Acts chapter 1. What is he talking about? Well, he was out of what you would expect the, the apostle appointment window. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so probably too young. <coughs> Jesus, I don't know for sure, but and he mentions in verse 9 that he was persecuting the church of God. So, yeah, he wasn't walking with Christ. He wasn't learning all these things as Christ was expounding that. I remember Christ was speaking in parables so that others wouldn't understand. He would explain to the disciples, to the apostles, this is what this means. This is what I'm all about, uh, explaining the kingdom of God, explaining his righteousness, that he is the Messiah, that he was going to die. He didn't make that a secret to his Disciples, he said, "You guys are my my friends. I'm going to tell you what's up." Um, and Paul obviously wasn't there. He wasn't walking with him when he was being baptized. When he was going through all these different things, so and so spiritual. What's that? He could talk to his spiritual birth, untimely born, saved too late. Yeah. Yeah. So he was not uh, qualified by that standard of. First Corinthians, or not First Corinthians, of Acts one, to be an apostle. So that's why some people say, well, that that qualification that they came up with, that was just their own understanding that they had to walk with Christ, and that Paul really should have been the thirteenth, quote unquote, thirteenth apostle, right? The replacement for Judas rather than Matthias. Um, but Paul identifies, well, no, this is unique. This is different. I wasn't. Um, 
under that same qualification. I was called by Christ himself as an apostle. It's a, a unique phrase. Um, he's indicating that his calling was abnormal. But that, that standard that they have had to have had walked with Christ, I think, is a, a good standard for that office of apostle. And Paul realizes that he was an anomaly. How is, how is through Christ's teachings be delivered except by the people that he taught? I mean, if you just said, well, this guy over here, you know, this guy has been a good rabbi, and this guy over here, you know. But they, had, they didn't know how to teach him. I mean, yeah, it would have to be supernaturally that God would continue to speak in that same way. But you look at Hebrews 1, it says that God spoke in, to our fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So we see things are changing, things are different. He's no longer speaking to us through prophets and apostles like he once did. And so, yeah, Paul has to recognize and realize, man, I'm, I'm different. I'm cool. set apart. Yeah. And Paul, obviously, is, like you said, an anomaly um, in that God confronts him. You know, he's, he's breathing threats. He's, he's going to, to Damascus to bring authority, authorization from the Sanhedrin and the rabbis that, to persecute the church. Breathing threats and imprecations and all this other stuff, and he is stricken blind. And you know, clearly God humbles him, right? And then he's taken to uh, I forget Simon's house, led by the hand because he's blind. But he hears the Lord's audible voice yep. speaking to him. And then he he's off the scene for 14 years. He goes off in the desert. Yep. Uh, he's supposedly learning and, and growing and studying and uh, actually being taught by, by God himself. So he was like he was like he talks about in other parts of the New Testament where he had a zeal mm-hmm. without knowledge for the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Lord broke him to bring him to be an apostle. Mm-hmm. Right? In Galatians one uh, eleven and twelve says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preach is not according to man, for I did not receive it from any man, nor will I taught it, but I received it directly from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, he is unique. He received that from Christ. So he didn't walk with him, but he definitely got the information from Christ himself. All right. It's a, Paul right. had a, a measure of, uh, I'm not sure how, what the word is, but integrity or whatever to the uh, to the church because he had full knowledge and training in all Jewish laws and understanding and you know he, he brought that in. The other apostles were kind of they, they were fishing a bunch of pigs and fishermen. And so Paul brought in that that aspect of, of knowledge of training. Yeah, he was a sophisticated college education or something, you know. But he brought in that aspect of that they were not just ignorant of the Jewish laws and, and the church. Yeah. It was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and even secular uh, historians suppose that he would be a, a leader in any field that he was in. If he wasn't a, a Christian theologian, that he would have made a mark on history in his own way because he was... Well, there's information so that he was looked on as being up and coming, not even become the high priest or something. Yeah, stuttered under Gamaliel, and yeah. Yeah, he was set apart for me, for sure. Do you have something? Well, he wouldn't become high priest because he was from Benjamin, not wrong. Yeah, wrong trial. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a... But he could have been high in the Sanhedrin. Yeah. Well, he could have been the one pulling the strings because the high priest was <laughs> a puppet. Spine was a, yeah, was a, was a, I'm not for sure all the high priests at that time were though for the trusted of the guys. <laughs> they weren't necessarily doing things by the book. But they were appointed by the Romans. Well, they paid the for, for sure. Right? Yeah, it was like a messy system. 
They, they already messed it all up because they had two high priests, high priest, mostly high priests for life, and one retired and his son-in-law yeah. at the office. I mean, yeah, it's all political by that time. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else, Drew? No. Okay. All right. It's important to note that Matthias replaced Judas before Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. When the Apostle James died in Acts 12, he was not replaced, and so on. So you can read in Acts 12, 1 and 2 about how James was killed. And they didn't gather up a whole big group of people and cast lots again and say, well, we need to replace him. Um, Judas was replaced because he was a son of perdition, right? He was recognized as an outcast, and he wasn't one of us, and so they needed to replace him, but that was an ongoing thing, and so again, that office has ceased to exist. Apostles spoke with the authority of Christ. That's important. Um, whenever they spoke, they spoke with the authority of Christ, and people today who want to claim to be apostles from many different denominations and uh, cults they will kind of hedge their bets on that and say, oh, he wasn't speaking authoritatively when he said that. Uh, he wasn't in session when he uttered those words. Um, that's not a qualification that you'll find from any of the original apostles. When they spoke, they spoke with Christ's authority. And their writings were of the same weight as Old Testament writings. Um, they were speaking from God. It was a, a high calling for sure. All right. Any questions on... Apostles or the run of prophets. Are there apostles today? No. no. Yes, they're in heaven. Are they in a church? Are they a part of the church? Universal local church. Universal church. Alright. In heaven. Good. In heaven. Alright. Well, prophets. Of course, and because people ask them questions around here, and that mm -hmm. is the answer. Yeah. We don't have, we do have 12, we have the original 12. Yeah. The original 11 plus something. <laughs> 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 they that is the answer when they ask you that question. Mm -hmm. So is Judas actually an apostle? Uh, he was feigning as an apostle, but he, I, I would say not. It was a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Yeah. And he needed to be replaced. Yep. All right. Prophets. Prophets existed in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And I think we might discuss that a little bit again in the sermon. There are true ones and false ones. That's important. Just because somebody claims to be a prophet doesn't necessarily mean that they are a true prophet of God. The people of God in all dispensations, that means all ages and periods of time, have been charged to discern true prophets from false ones. Where in scripture can we find how we do that? How will we discern prophets? Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. All right, those are two chapters for discerning whether a prophet is true. And in short, they cover, um, are they leading people after another God? If they are, then they're a false prophet. And are they speaking? Even if they do miraculous signs. Yeah, yeah, so they can do miraculous things. Uh, remember that when Moses brought people up out of Egypt, he did all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. And the Egyptians that were under Pharaoh, they were able to do some of that. Um, they manipulated stuff to do these miraculous signs. Uh, of course, they couldn't do all of them, but even the miraculous signs that they did, they didn't verify them as true prophets. And then if they give a, a false prophecy, then obviously they're not a true prophet because somebody who is a prophet of God, the all-knowing, omniscient God of truth, isn't going to give a prophecy that is false. Yes. He well, gave false prophets, right? False prophecies. Yeah, it is critical to remember that miracles, of performing miracles, does not qualify them Exclusively, because at some point, somebody the ones who want to actually appear to have raised somebody from the dead. Yeah, so we have to be careful. Yep, absolutely. All right, genuine prophets either brought a new message from God or added to a message that was already given. Uh, in either case, they were speaking for God, right? Not against Him. Interestingly, the prophets were subject to the apostles in their rank and authority in the early church. Remember that God is a God of order. 
So the prophets were subject to the apostles. So they would look to the apostles for their guidance and uh, understand them to be in authority over the, the prophets. Do you have any reference for that? Um, I think it's going to be here in Ephesians 2. And looking at the... Yeah, it is going to be here. Ephesians 2. And then... Sorry. No, you're good. Could you go back one real quick? Yeah, we'll do that. What would you say of Bible? Um, yeah, good answer. <laughs> um, he was used of God. God said he was a prophet of God. Yeah, he was an unwilling prophet. Right. Well, he was a perverted he was that he was he succumbed to greed. He tried, yes. he tried to speak, he tried to speak <laughs> false So prophecy. continuing on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was unable to. Again, an unwilling prophet. <laughs> Alright, you're done with that page? Yes, thank All you. Alright, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And notice the the order that these are, are mentioned in as we go through that. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Who is that speaking of? Citizens of the saints and the household of God. What group of people? Well, the Israelis. And then the Gentiles are added to them. Yeah, so speaking of the church here, that they are citizens of the saints and of God's household. Um, 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, I don't say chief, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together as growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you all also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And so here, along with uh, 4.11, 1 Corinthians 12.28, apostles are listed first. Um, and then also down in 3.5, which says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And then what is the implication of apostles and prophets being foundational to the church in Ephesus? Why is that important? What does that mean? It establishes God's order. You call it that. You have to call it that because it's what God established. He established them. And the authority that he gave to the apostles, prophets first, the apostles replaced the prophets in hierarchy and prophets fell below. And Christ being the fact that Christ was over both in that sense and that established pretty much where you know the foundation of the church from the building Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so when you are constructing a building, you're a contractor, right? General contractor, uh, you don't call in the people who lay your foundation after you call in for uh, framing and electrical and plumbing. Uh, you, you have that done first. And then once you've laid the foundation and had somebody come in and do framing, electrical, plumbing, all these other things, you don't call them back and say, hey, I need another foundation on top of that one. Um, I need to keep building foundations on top of that foundation. A foundation is meant and intended to be put there once and then to be built upon. And so the apostles and prophets being the foundation of the church, um, they, they have established that foundation and their role is fulfilled. And we're no longer looking to build other foundations upon that foundation. And so the major implication for us today is that the apostles' writings in the New Testament, it's, you know, it's closed camp. That's our foundation. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, we don't build with more apostles coming after. 
and it's it's the primary reason why biblical Orthodox Christianity is segregated and kept separate from Catholicism, from you know the quote unquote Orthodox Church in the East, um, all of the various cults, all of it. Yeah. You have you have to look to the foundation, which is God's word, and that's it. Good. All right, apostles and prophets together. The apostle John did not consider it impossible or possible for anyone to add to the words of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. John's teaching is that there is no longer an office in the church with the authority to bring about new revelation from God. So Revelation 22, uh, 17 and 18 says, if anybody adds to the words of this book, then to him should be added all the plagues and uh, bad things. There's another word, was. I'll just try to quote it, that are mentioned in this book. And if anybody subtracts from the words of this book, from them will be subtracted the, their inheritance and uh, eternal life. And so he's saying... John, who is the oldest and who was the last apostle, who was about to die, he's put in a, a clothes on. He's wrapped up and saying, it's kind of, because all the apostles and prophets, those who are bringing new revelation, um, that office is now closed. And now we're looking to God's word as, as he has revealed it to us and preserved it for us, rather than looking for new revelation. And, and as you mentioned, that really separates us from uh, a vast swath of, of other faiths and religions because they are looking for new revelatory um, inspiration from God. Well, it ends, I mean, it ends the idea of Islam. Yeah. You know, it ends the idea of Orthodox Judaism. It, it's, it's utterly unique. It sits by itself. Yeah. It is set apart for sure. Another way say foundational, say it's set in concrete. Their teachings, as clearly as we understand them, should be set in concrete. We can't change it. Yeah, and they're going through that right now, the, the hermeneutic series, that they're not valuable. So when the apostle says something, they say it with an intention. Um, and they don't mean for it to, to grow and develop and for us to come and say, okay, well, Paul said such and such, and what does that mean to me? Or what does that mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to us. It, we need to look for the, the author's original intent when they wrote it. That is what is important. Like you said, it's concrete. It's foundational. All right, let's look at evangelists, another uh, group that's mentioned in Ephesians 4 when uh, Paul says to the church, uh, Christ has given apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Only one person in the Bible is called an evangelist. Do you know who it is? Yeah. Philip the Evangelist, Acts 21.8. Similarly, Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, he was called to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, last chapter, when Paul's telling him, hey, this is what I commissioned you with. This is what I want you to do. Uh, this is what I'm entrusting you with. He tells him, go out and do, do all these things. Uh, preach your word, do what you're supposed to do, and do the work of evangelists. What do we do with so little information? I mean, we have one person who's called an evangelist, one person who's told to do the work of an evangelist. But then in Ephesians 4, we're told that God has given this gift of an evangelist to the church. Any thoughts before we dig into it? Too slow. All right. Evangelism is an activity for all Christians in all ages. We are all called to share the good news. So a lot of people use that as an excuse and say, well, I'm not an evangelist. God hasn't called me an evangelist. He hasn't given me the gift of evangelism. Uh, that's a cop-out. That's not something we can use or say. God has called each one of us to share our faith. If he has taken and regenerated us and made us into a new living creature, if he has shed his grace upon us, then we are called to share that with other people and to do the work of an evangelist. Interestingly, in God's program, there are some believers who are particularly proficient in this area. Their ministry in the church is to equip the saints, to build up and encourage other people to um, act and to do the work of an evangelist. MacArthur and Mayhew, Biblical Doctrine, say that evangelists are uniquely gifted by God at reaching lost sinners 
with the saving truth of the gospel. Their ministry is one that every church ought to prioritize, both by encouraging evangelism in the local community and by supporting missionary work around the world. That's something we've talked about before, that evangelism doesn't just take place here, but just as the Christians in Jerusalem, they were called to be witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So we are too to look outside of our community of Payson and support missionaries worldwide. What you look for when discerning whether you or someone else have or has been gifted with the gift of evangelism. Again, we're working with rather limited data, but... <laughs> yeah. Look at someone who can communicate the gospel effectively. Someone who can share, you know, and basically say, we are sinners, we need the salvation in front of a righteous God that comes only alone and entirely through Jesus Christ, who is executed, buried, and resurrected. Somebody who can articulate the gospel and who has the, the ability and the goal to stand up and say, no, Christ is exclusive, right? Jamie, then we'll go on. I like somebody who can talk to an individual or a group and discern what they need to hear. You know, and that, a lot of times that's our problem. I want to tell them one thing. What they need to hear is something else. The person with the gift of evangelism perceives that and moves right to answer their questions or whatever, you know, just tell them what they need to hear. Yeah, it's discernment through the Spirit. Yeah. A lot of us don't have that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't evangelize. Amen. But it means it's tougher for some of us. Yeah. Not just addressing felt needs. Somebody comes in and says, hey, man, I can't make my rent this week or uh, I, I lost my daughter in a car accident or something. And you can address that initially, but look past that and see what you really need is Christ. What you really need is uh, rebirth, rebirth, right? Um, good. All right. Pastors, teachers, I think we might be able to get through this. We'll see. We'll pick up next week for this. Reminder that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So there are teachers within a local church that doesn't make them pastors. There are pastors within a biblical local church, and they must be teaching, right? Um, that is a functional qualification for a pastor. Pastors are the under-shepherds that the chief shepherd has given to the local church. Like the apostles in Acts 6, they are dedicated to the ministry of the word and to prayer. So Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd, right? Uh, his church is his. He died for his church. He is leading his church, guiding his church. And he is the, the ultimate, the chief shepherd, right? It is his church. But he has um, under shepherds who will do the work of a shepherd, do the work of a pastor. And they must recognize and realize that they are under his headship. And then Acts 6, that is where um, this dispute arose among the Hellenistic Jews and the, the other Jews about the, the women, the widows being served. And they brought this to the pastors and the pastors were like, hey, look, we, we got a lot on our plates. So they took seven men and they appointed them to help serve tables. So that's where we see kind of the beginning of deacons. And... Um, that was so the, the pastors could devote their time more fully to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We spent some time last recent weeks looking at Acts 2.42 and how those are uh, really foundational to what the apostles were doing. That they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. And the pastors here to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer while they appoint deacons to um, to wait tables to do some of these other roles. Not one more important than the other, but delegating and dividing up so that they can both be done effectively. Two other New Testament words speak of this office. Episcopus, which means bishop, and presbyteros, which means elder. 
the words are used interchangeably. So uh, bishop, shepherd, elder, they're all speaking of a pastor. And um, you can pick them apart when you're doing some study, but really they're interchangeable. These shepherds should possess spiritual maturity, great character, wisdom, and good judgment. How do we know that? We are given qualifications. Amen. So we have a list. So with evangelists, we're, we're kind of shooting in the dark a little bit, right? When we're talking, how do we identify somebody who might be an evangelist or have that gift of evangelism? And... Um, we, we know and recognize that our answers are extra-biblical, largely, um, to, to be able to point to somebody about the exclusivity of Christ or um, just anything we give. It's not going to be based in Scripture like uh, qualification for a pastor would be. And where in Scripture can we go to find those qualifications? First Timothy. Titus. All right. First Timothy chapter... Three. Good job. And Titus yes, chapter. What chapter? Two. Chapter one. Chapter one. <laughs> Titus one and First Timothy three. They outline very clearly um, what an elder should be or must be, rather. <laughs> Elders care for the church and rule in Christ-like care over God's flock. They preach, teach, provide oversight, ordain other elders, set an example, and protect the sheep. So remember earlier I told you how uh, Presbyterians will often set these apart and they'll say, well, there's a, a teaching elder and a ruling elder and they have different roles and different functions. Even though they both teach and they both rule, um, they'll make a distinction, but we don't do that. Um, elders, unlike apostles and prophets, are selected by the church and must meet a specific qualification list. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 3. Read over that list. And if you're in Ephesians like I am, you want to turn to the right, not the left, like I just did. All right, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Will somebody read that for us, please? Got it. The saint is trustworthy. If anyone as, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and a snare of the devil. All right, so that first qualification is a good summary of the rest. What is the first qualification of what an elder must be? Above reproach. Above reproach or blameless, right? Um, and that's not to say that somebody can't tag him with something and say, um, come at him with accusations, because that happens to all kinds of pastors, right? Um, but that um, accusation shouldn't be able to stick if they're above approach. Then somebody will make a claim of a pastor, and uh, people who know him best will be able to say, no, that's, that's not true. I don't buy it. Not, not that guy, right? Elders must be proven among God's people and must have a good reputation outside of the church. We saw that uh, they must be above reproach, and that for sure is within the church, right? We don't care what outsiders say. Um, if somebody comes into this church and says, uh, your guys' pastors are teaching against homosexuality, your guys' pastors are loving and gracious and accepting of the transgender movement or you know whatever it might be, they're, they're operating from a different standard. We're not going to to see to that. We're not going to listen to that. Um, but in verse 7, it says that they must have a good reputation amongst outsiders. Again, that should be based on a biblical standard, um, that they're not living uh, a life that isn't worthy of the calling they've received. And then Titus 1, 1 through 6, that's where we can find a, a cross-reference to the same qualifications. 
All right, the standard set in the New Testament is a plurality of elders in each local church. We can look at Acts 30 or 1130. It says that they sent a contribution in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders, plural. Uh, Acts 14.23 says that when they appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord. Acts 20.17 says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Each one of these speak of elders plurally. Same with Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.5, James 5.14. There are no single pastor churches mentioned in the New Testament where you go and you talk to the pastor of this church. You're always spoken of as pastors of elders. Uh, again, yes, presbyteros or episcopus, uh, plural. Naturally, there will be diversity among elders in giftedness, visibility, and responsibility. Not every elder is going to function and act in exactly the same way. The church is called to... Um, Several different things. We'll look at these next week. That's a decent spot to stop. Um, got time for maybe one or two questions for we take off. Any questions on uh, these different offices being gifted to the church or apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, slash pastors? Yes. I know these are often, almost always taught as qualifications. I would suggest they are characteristics because a qualification means if you don't meet it, you're out. The pastor has a child that becomes rebellious. I don't think he has to decide. He's no longer he's not disqualified immediately just because of a rebellious child or one of the other things. Uh, I, that's just my opinion. I know I'm in the minority. Uh, but <laughs> I also feel like if that's the qualifications, we should add to them. And we do add to them all the time. We want somebody that's this old, has this kind of degree, that yeah. want this kind of experience. Uh, that's, that's just me. I'm in the minority. Well, I agree that we, we should add to them, and we often do. Uh, I heard a story once about um, some church that posted uh, a help wanted type ad. They were looking for a pastor, and they said, well, they have to have experience in leading a church that's over 10,000 people. They have to be <laughs> proficient with PowerPoint. They have to have led so many people to the board. And yeah, all these qualifications that aren't critical qualifications. Um, we certainly need to be careful of that. Um, as far as the, the other being able to, to lead your, your family, I think that's definitely a qualification. We'll talk about that later. It looks like I'm being something. So, um, let's go. Thanks, guys. <laughs>